The following program is brought to you by Caltech. Doesn't have a complete picture of the uh, options we're talking about, even though the, fo the foci for the rest of the week will be on stratospheric aerosols and low clouds. But I think it's really important to ground us. So uh, we have an hour for this talk, and um, if you could leave 20 minutes for Q and A. <laughs> I'm sorry, an hour. You know total. how that an goes. Hour we're going to cut you off at, at you, 20 minutes too. So. Right. You know how that goes, and of course, I have too many slides. Thanks, Riley. Um, so actually, we are kind of uh, bleeding into the um, mitigation and geoengineering side of things, um, whether we whether we liked it or not. Um, uh, so I'm going to talk. Uh, I'm going to talk about black carbon and dust. Um, this is a little bit hard to see, but uh, this was last week, uh, and this is here with a shovel in her hand and snow in the blade, and over there is uh, Lori Garver, who's the deputy administrator of NASA. And um, uh, it, I guess it's a historical moment that a scientist has had five days with a, an administrator or a deputy administrator. And, uh, <laughs> you know what? It was, it was actually fantastic. So anyway, my, this is my excuse for, uh, for how scattered my slides are. Uh, so my apologies. So I'm going to start out talking about just the fundamentals of, of the radiation and, um, and snow melt and glacier melt. Um, uh, what is it that controls the melt? Uh, then I'll talk about observations from the globe, what limited information we actually have from around the globe, where we know the impact well, largely in the upper Colorado River Basin, and then what then are the implications uh, for where we don't know the impacts well. Um, geoengineering the efforts that are going on right now, colors, sorry about that. Um, and then leading into mitigation and, uh, and how do we make the observations that we really need that will, that will begin to fill in. Um, so there's been a great deal of uh, discussion in the last few years related to the atmospheric brown clouds. Um, this is a shot from Mara Peak near uh, Mount Everest looking off to the uh, to the south and showing one of those uh, atmospheric brown, uh, brown clouds that uh, Ram Ramanathan has focused on so heavily. And these lap up against the, the foothills of the Himalaya, but occasionally they get punched through, through mon monsoonal flow up and over the Himalaya and deposited into the mountain snow and ice. Uh, dust storms also are carried through. This is in the upper Colorado, taken for those of you from uh, Colorado. There are a few of you here. Um, this is from the summit of uh, Mount Sneffels, um, looking out across to about, uh, I think there are about 12, 14,000 foot peaks showing here. Um, and this was in the, the spring of 2009 when we saw a particularly heavy dust load. Um, so as I mentioned, there's been heavy, heavy emphasis on, on black carbon. This, uh, while there were, there were papers uh, previous to this, it really in the last few years got a, a big kickstart from, from Jim Hansen's paper uh, in 2004 um, that used a fairly unrealistic scenario of a 5% absolute drop in, in snow albedo. Um, but this, again, kicked off several papers um, and a great deal of new effort. Uh, either in Tibet or even in the western U.S. Um, and, uh, and then Rom's recent work looking at, this is largely black, black carbon in the atmosphere, the atmospheric heating. Um, and then, uh, then Ming Jing's work recently uh, in, um, 
in western China, but I, I want to emphasize here black carbon in the snow of glaciers in west China and its potential effects on albedos. So for the most part, we, we don't have the measurements um, from around the globe. The other thing to keep in mind as we go through this, uh, this talk, and I'm going to focus mostly on dust, um, and uh, apologies to Alan and, and Brian who have seen this talk quite recently. Um, this is the albedo reduction caused by black carbon relative to dust concentration. And then for varying concentrations of that black carbon. So as the dust concentration increases, the ability of the black carbon to influence the albedo decreases. Okay? And as we'll see in a bit, the black are the dust concentrations we see in the upper Colorado, and we infer to be in other uh, parts of the world, can reach greater than the parts per thousand. So so black carbon in those areas can't really have an effect. So how does, how does this play out? So the dust inf influences um, the albedo primarily. This is the energy balance equation. Um, these are some energy balance components in the Senator Beck Basin where we have uh, two energy balance towers in southwest Colorado. Um, a particularly warm series of days as well, 13 to 15 C uh, max temperatures. Um, the black trace here represents the net flux. That's the energy available for snowmelt. And then the net solar is the red trace. Essentially, the sun dominates the snowmelt. Right? And the sensible heating terms, even though it's very high temperatures, still those are largely balanced by the net long wave and the latent cooling term in this case. So a modulation of the temperature is not going to have a huge impact, whereas a modulation of the albedo has the driving impact on the energy available for melt. So how does that play out? This is in the upper Colorado. This is at the Mordorach Gletscher by, uh, in a paper by Hans Orlemans. Uh, energy, total of energy available for melt. Here's the net shortwave. So how does, this, how does this work? Well, the first is just the, the contrast and the optical properties of, of ice, which is the, um, what makes up the snowpack, and then the dust itself. And that happens primarily in the visible wavelengths, as I'll show in a second. The next is that dust generally comes in the spring, and that's during the period in which the snowpack is warming, the sun's getting higher in the sky, and there's less precipitation that can follow up to cover those dust layers. So if, if dust came primarily in December and then was covered by the heavy spring precipitation, then it wouldn't really have an effect. Finally, uh, and every bit as important, is that dust generally accumulates in the layer into which it was deposited, and that's shown by, by these figures that are staggered by a month. This is at Rabbit Ears Pass um, in, uh, in Colorado, so about as far away from dust sources in the upper Colorado River Basin as you can be. Uh, and in one month's time, these three layers then have merged into this single layer, and no dust is infiltrating into the snowmelt. So the dust keeps itself as close to the surface as possible. It's kept there by the, the matrix of snow, and it can continue to have its impact darkening as the season progresses. Okay, so for, this is just for clean snow. These are the spectral albedos. In the visible wavelengths, it's largely insensitive to uh, the particle size. Whereas if, as we step out to where ice becomes more absorptive, then the greatest sensitivity lies here in the near infrared. Out in the shortwave infrared, we only have a real sensitivity when the particle sizes are quite small. So for most particle sizes of snow, the, the snow reflectance 
snow is essentially black out in the shortwave infrared. But the big contrast comes in the visible wavelengths when dust and black carbon are introduced. And uh, important to note is that about a half of the, the solar irradiance comes in those visible wavelengths. So dust is having a big impact in the part of the spectrum where there is a, a large contribution of irradiance. And then I like to argue that, that snow actually is the most colorful surface on the planet. It is certainly the one that goes through the greatest range of albedos. Um, and I think I don't have the figure in here, but, um, but we have observed snow albedo ranging from about 0.9 down to 0.33. That's what you saw from Colorado with that very heavy dust loading. Um, and these are, the, these are measured spectral albedos that we've, um, we've taken in the field with a field spectrometer. These are directional reflectances, but just to show that broad range. And then this heavy dust-loaded um, albedo is down around 0.33. Okay, and how, how does that play out, the concentration? So it's really important, especially as we get to the, the remote sensing aspect of this. So these are for varying concentrations of black carbon. Uh, the clean spectral albedo here, the brightest, of course. And then we introduce 10 parts per billion of soot, and, um, and we start to see that impact in the visible wavelengths. But as the concentration increases, the impact increases in wavelength. Right? And it does so continuously. It's, uh, this is the near-surface concentration, okay? So um, actually, this, yeah, this is, the, this is the concentration in the top centimeter of the snowpack. And then it's clean snow underneath that. And CBTW is in? Parts per billion by weight. By weight. Right. Right. Okay. That's right. Okay. Right. Right. So we define, just as, with, uh, just as with clouds, we need to define the radiative impact. So the direct effect is the absorption in the visible and the near-infrared um, directly by the dust or the black carbon. Okay? And I, I say here for large concentrations. So as the concentration increases, that impact reaches out into the near-infrared. The first indirect effect comes from the enhanced grain growth. So the increased absorption in the snowpack accelerates snow metamorphism, and that leads to coarser grains. Coarser grains have larger absorbing path lengths for photons, and that further uh, depresses the snow albedo. And then the second indirect effect comes simply from the, the earlier exposure of a darker substrate um, and key in the snow albedo feedback. I'm just going to push past these since I know I have too many slides. Okay, so observations from the globe. So this, this is the upper Colorado. Again, this is, uh, this is taken very near Telluride. Um, and this photo was uh, in the LA Times, on the cover of it. Well, it was embedded in the LA Times. It was on, in Le Monde in France. and. Uh, and all the way out to newspapers in Urumuchi. So that particular year, the, uh, the rest of the globe was very interested in the western Colorado snow albedo. Well, perhaps, perhaps. Um, so, so the albedo 
and this year reached down at our uh, our towers, which are just over the uh, the divide over here, reached down to about 0.33 for the last three weeks of snow cover. Now that doesn't fall in the usual range of albedos in the textbooks. Um, relatively clean snow aged through a season has an, an end of season albedo of about 0.7. So that represents more than a doubling of the net solar radiation by the snowpack. Now, how do you get for that relatively clean snow, how would you get the same amount of radiation into the snowpack? Well, you would have to move that snowpack and the Earth closer to the sun than Venus. Okay? More than a doubling of, of the solar irradiance. Now, the vegetation and, and uh, humans wouldn't do very well under that kind of scenario, and the snowpack doesn't either. Um, The projector's not punching it out quite as much. Anyway, it does show the, a good contrast. Um, this is showing some of the, uh, the broad dust exposure uh, on the Alaskan glaciers. Um, and Lonnie Thompson has a graduate student that uh, is publishing a dissertation here soon that has shown that over the last 30 to 40 years, there's been somewhere between a, a tripling and a quadrupling of dust deposition uh, into Alaskan glaciers. That's consistent with uh, the increase in dust emission coming out of the, the Gobi and the Taklamakan uh, deserts of Asia. Um, this is uh, Mount Kosciusko in Australia. Considerable dust load uh, into that mountain snowpack. And then coming out of the plains of the Himalaya um, and blasting into the Indian Himalaya, we see the same thing in the Hindu Kush and further east into, uh, into Nepal. Um, and you can see that exposure of dust in those mountain snow covers. Ah, yes, this is, so this is the Hindu Kush as well. One of the large haboobs blowing out across, uh, across the plains and up into the snow cover. Here's an oblique shot of that mountain snow cover. And then finally, the Tian Shan um, and downwind of the Aral Sea, which has seen considerable increases in its dust emission. And we don't really know for sure that all of this dust or even how much of this dust is coming out of, out of the Aral Sea. There's been considerable land disturbance that is downwind of the Aral Sea, so much yet to find out. And then I guess finally now into uh, back into the um, Mount Everest region, and this is looking up Mara Peak with uh, Mount Everest behind us, and considerable dust. Uh, exposure, and this runs all the way up to about 6,400 meters um, before giving way to relatively new clean snow. Okay, so what, what limited information do we have about, about these changes globally? Um, so again, Lonnie Thompson had some other work uh, from the Dasuupu Corps um, from 2000, and he showed that since about 1850, there's been a fourfold increase in dust load. This is recently confirmed um, by Jessica Conway and, uh, and Jonathan Overpeck um, from lake sediments uh, further out into southwest Tibet. In the Caucasus, there's been a considerable increase in dust load. This began somewhere around the 1930s. The Antarctic Peninsula has seen uh, roughly a doubling, about a little more than a doubling of dust accumulation. And this was coincident, starting in about the 1930s, coincident with the introduction of large numbers of uh, sheep 
into Patagonia. And when you look at the circulation patterns, it's not surprising that we see uh, a dust increase in, in the Antarctic Peninsula. So where do we know the impact well? Um, so this is the upper Colorado River Basin. And again, that these dust concentrations that we're seeing out here are on the order of uh, parts per thousand. <clears throat> so lake sediments that we performed in, uh, I think it was in 2006 and 2007 um, at high elevations. From that, we found that over the last 5,000 years, leading up until about 1850 or so, there was relatively stable dust loading into those high, ele high elevation regions. But coincident with the disturbance of the western U.S., largely from uh, grazing by cattle and sheep, and then subsequently um, energy exploration, uh, there was a, a, about a seven-fold increase in dust load. Now, there are two decreases in here that are kind of squeezed in because of the log, the log scale, but there was a massive die-off in the sheep population in the late 1890s uh, and bleeding into about 1910. And then the Taylor Grazing Act is coincident with this drop. The Taylor Grazing Act removed large numbers of grazing animals from the public lands. Um, but it appears that we have stabilized somewhat, although we don't really have the resolution from, from these lake sediments. Nevertheless, the snowpack now is, is dirtier because of this five to seven-fold increase uh, in dust load. And <clears throat> before we had done those lake sediments, it was largely predicted because of the work by, uh, by Jane Belknap, Rich Reynolds, Merith Reheis, um, all with the USGS, who had been looking at crust disturbance in the Colorado Plateau and the Mojave Deserts, the Sonoran, and the Great Basin. These are results of sediment movement, so essentially dust accumulation, um, for various soils. And this, I think, result is particular to the Colorado Plateau. And you can see that in essentially every case, disturbance creates a massive increase in that, in that dust load. And in general, desert surfaces are armored by crusts. They're armored by physical crusts and biological crusts, cryptobiotic soils. Um, and remember that prior to the 1850s, 1860s, in the Colorado Plateau, out into the Great Basin and beyond, we didn't have the herds of buffalo. They weren't roaming back and forth, tearing it up. It was largely unpopulated. Uh, the deer populations were quite small. They stayed in the, the riparian areas and, um, and did not wander out because it's very, very dry out in, in those deserts. Um, and so that region uh, was essentially a stable surface, not a non-dust-emitting non surface. Okay, and these, these dust sources, of course, are regional, as I'm describing. These are um, in the Navajo Nation, starting out in the Little Colorado Band. There's a road that comes across here, considerable disturbance here. And many of you, I would guess, have driven through the Navajo Nation and seen uh, this transformed surface. There's very little vegetation, uh, essentially no cryptobiotic soils, um, and uh, considerable uh, source material. This is now moving up to central Utah, and you can see the Great Salt Lake right up here. 
couple of dust plumes here. We'll highlight these from the modus retrieval. And then there are other dust plumes coming out of the great, uh, actually, these are out of Nevada. Um, the Great Salt Lake Desert is also emitting, but it's covered by clouds here. And then this particularly bright plume is the Milford Flat Fire Scar. In 2007, well, before 2007, this plume was not showing up on the, um, on the remote sensing retrievals. In 2007, the Milford Flat Fire was the largest wildfire in, in Utah history. Um, after the fire, the state of Utah and the Bureau of Reclamation went in to apply general rangeland practice, which is to revegetate areas and get uh, the grazing animals back onto the surface as soon as possible. Um, unfortunately, they had not studied the soils that they were going out to, and there were several thousand acres of cryptobiotic soils. Very, very stable, no grasses interspersed by shrubs. And when they broke through those to reseed the areas, they essentially broke into ancient Lake Bonneville sediments, uh, which are very loose materials. And now, uh, this plume, essentially every time the wind blows at all, it's funneled through the topography here and into Provo, Orem, and Salt Lake City. I lived three years of inhaling that. Um, and the, um, the EPA has now been looking at this very carefully because in the last three to four years, uh, since that fire, so I guess this is now the, would be the third full, fourth full year, um, uh, Salt Lake City has been exceeding particulates, uh, particulate levels, um, violating those severely. And then what do we face out into the future? So this is a paper by Seth Munson and others, um, uh, including Greg Oaken at UCLA. And what they're finding in the, uh, in the upper Colorado is that there's this exponential response of aeolian sediment, uh, so, so sediment flux, related to the mean annual temperature in the previous year. And this largely related to a decrease in canopy cover. So as the west heads into a warmer climate, then we may well be heading into increases in dust emission. And this is not just in the west, but uh, other parts of the globe. Okay, so. <clears throat> So how does this translate into to the impact on snowmelt? Um, so we have two towers in, uh, in the San Juan Mountains. We have another tower in, um, on the Grand Mesa. And then we'll build, we're working towards building a, new, uh, a broader network in the upper Colorado. Um, we have the, the general energy balance measurements, but we also have additional radiation measurements that allow us to infer the impacts of dust um, on the radiative forcing. And so we can then remove that dust radiative forcing from the snowmelt model. Uh, these are several years of data. Uh, and the spaghetti translates into um, the, the dust, well, the black curve, which is described as dust now. This is current conditions, cur current meteorology, and current dust load. And uh, then measured SWE is, are the diamonds here. And so we do quite well with the, with the snowmelt modeling. Now, <clears throat> we can remove the dust radiative forcing on an hourly basis and watch how the snow water equivalent uh, evolves. And so not surprisingly, the snowpack is, is lasting longer. Um, the difference in meltout days is represented on top of each of these bars. And so over 2005 through 2009, we saw a dust forcing in terms of snowmelt 
complete snow melt of about 26 to 50 days difference in meltout. So a month to nearly two months difference in meltout. And then we ran the scenarios with the cleaner snowpack under scenarios of increases in temperatures of plus two and plus four. And those impacts run uh, on the order of five up to 15 days difference. So not surprisingly, the dust has a bigger impact, but that's just where there is snow. So not, not in those areas where there's not snow. And then how do the two work together? Well, in general, the increases in temperature don't really force the melt that much more. And that's because the, the acceleration by the dust is so potent that the, the increases in temperature can't really keep up. And that's not surprising given what we saw from those time series of the energy balance components. Now, extrapolating those results from our energy balance towers to the, the whole of the upper basin, we used the, the, um, the VIC model, the variable infiltration capacity hydrology model, and used the scenarios of dust forcing in 2005 through 2008, so not including the big year of 2009. And then we cleaned the snowpack up to about five times less dust, so back to that scenario of pre-disturbance to try to understand how the hydrology of the upper Colorado has changed with that disturbance in the western U.S. And the results suggest, first of all, not surprisingly, that right now, so post-disturbance is, is present day, there's a steeper rising limb. For hydrologic management, that is, that is a tough scenario because any kinds of mistakes that occur in the capture and release of water from reservoirs at various scales have bigger implications. Uh, and those implications translate directly into dollars. The other is that there's about a three-week earlier peak because of the dust, and that then moves the mass earlier in the year and loses that mass out further when the hydroelectric generation is important for uh, the warmer temperatures, electricity being generated, I mean, uh, air conditioning needing to run, and then also it pushes the agriculture earlier in the season as well, whereas that mass would be coming out later in the season. And then finally, um, there's about 5% less total runoff. And this is due to a more protracted uh, growing season and therefore more protracted evapotranspiration. That's not necessarily the case everywhere. It's important that there's the monsoon into the upper Colorado, and that meets some of the evaporative demands and balances this out. In the Sierra Nevada, in fact, uh, under the dusty conditions, you would see less runoff because of the time at which that, that snow melt would be coming and the ET would begin. Okay, so, so what are the implications for where we, we don't know the impact well? Um, I just give these as a, as a list. So, <clears throat> so the first is that, that we know that warming the snowpack um, increases its sublimation rates. So through the Clausius-Clapeyron relation, say an increase in temperature from negative 5 to 0 C, that results in about a 50% increase in saturation vapor pressure. So that more mass is available. There's accelerated snow melt and retreat of snow cover. Um, and in turn, that can markedly increase the energy fluxes, fluxes to glacier ice. Um, 
It also appears that the dust loading is, is heaviest, not surprisingly, in the, in the lower elevations, so most heavily impacting uh, and expanding ablation zones of glaciers. Um, and there are quite, there are of course strong sensitivities to, to this, to the temporal dynamics of snow cover. For instance, this spring in Colorado, there's been a huge uh, uh, record-breaking um, accumulation of snowfall. There are several dust layers in the snowpack right now, but they continue to be buried. And so we're about to get to June 1st, and we've seen very little radiative forcing by, by dust. All right. So geo, geoengineering efforts uh, thus far. Um, so we performed one uh, back in 2006 up at Niwot Ridge um, with, uh, with scrapers, so long-handled scrapers. We went out. And remember, the dust stays near the surface, so it's easy to access. Um, and so for, for five by 20 meter plots uh, up at Niwot Ridge, uh, we scraped the dust off that we could access and then removed that snow and came back 10, 10 days later and we found about 35 centimeters of differential melt. And at 30 days, we saw over a meter of differential melt. Okay, so it can, in fact, have, have an impact. Now, there are others that are pursuing geoengineering. Um, this is on the, uh, um, the Gershon Glacier uh, at Andermatt. Um, and I'm going to key into some videos here in a second. Um, and then this is the Chalan Sombrero, uh, what used to be a glacier in Peru. And then Jason Box, who's at Ohio State, a uh, former um, office mate of mine. get back. If you think heroes are only in movies, Sorry about the ad. Over 70% of firefighters are local volunteers. These are our neighbors putting their lives on the line. And when they rely on a battery, there are firefighters everywhere who trust Duracell. And now you can join with Duracell. Fire, fire particulates do impact uh, snow melts as well. And Duracell will make a battery donation to local volunteers. These days, don't we all need someone to trust? Duracell, trusted everywhere. There's a very strange sight high up in the Swiss Alps. Two massive blankets protecting thousands of meters of snow on the last glacier. They've been there since the spring and won't come off until the fall. The problem here is that they have uh, only a few meters snow every year. A few years ago it was up to 10 meters and uh, now it's between four, 4 and 6 meters. The world's glaciers have been affected dramatically by global warming. Notice the albedo of the surface. They're disappearing at an alarming rate. The top of this mountain range, for example, was completely covered by snow in 1960. Today, it's bare. I think tourism is among the top five money earners for many of the alpine uh, countries. And, uh, well, for each degree of uh, warming, the snow line rises by about 150 meters. Plus, uh, some of the glaciers are also used for skiing uh, today. How about if they disappear partially or totally, the process is going to be 
uh, a big loss for the, uh, the income of many uh, ski resorts. These blankets provide a short-term solution. Without them, the snow would have melted months ago, making it impossible for ski operators to open up on time the next season. This blanket is made of, of, of a polypropylene geotextile on, on the downside, like with a very high uh, tear resistance. This ice protector protects the sun just to go uh, through this blanket and that the snow is not melting during the summertime. The snow blankets are manufactured in the mountain town of Naples. These silos store the polypropylene granulates that make up the blankets. Behind me you can see where the polypropylene okay, granulates go uh... and get mixed with this UV stabilization. Alright, now let me move to this one. This is Eduardo Gold, who uh, secured $200,000 from the World Bank. Which the glacier used to generate. And little by little, they are seeing that. Back. Come on now. All right, well, well, that's thinking about that. So, <clears throat> so here's his scenario. Paint the talus, these big, uh, these big fields of broken rock, white, where there used to be a glacier, to affect a microclimate. And <clears throat> so his, his first effort is, is cooling through creating that microclimate. Um, and he eventually wants to cover the whole of the mountain with white paint. Um, but partway through this, he also mentions that he really would like to see, by creating that microclimate, the regrowth of the glaciers there. And um, which shows that he doesn't quite understand how glaciers uh, ultimately are formed. Um, uh, it's too bad. Oh, well. All right. So, <laughs> I think it's bogus. I mean, I, I, well, honestly, I think it'll, it'll help cool things nearby to a degree. I mean, you, you increase the albedo. Uh, those, are, those are rather dark rocks. Um, and, and we know from walking on, uh, walking on those kinds of surfaces, the... Uh, you can have a rather strong long-wave emission out of them. Um, but in terms of growing the glaciers, yeah, that's, that's bogus. But he still got funded. But he got funded. He got $200,000. All right. I've got psoriasis. And now we start with the psoriasis ad. Sorry about that. Thinking, make that dreading. But it's a little bit like red flaky skin patches. Particulates onto uh, dark surfaces. So this next one, <laughs> so this next one is a little more, it's reasonable in terms of the physics, but it's a little bit unreasonable in terms of the geography. This is Jason Box uh, at Ohio State. 
Bird Polar Research Center. just fine. All right, so at any rate, this was a Discovery Channel uh, video. Um, and uh, they went out with Jason uh, into Greenland, into the ablation zone, um, where he had draped out similar tarps. And uh, his proposal is to drape the whole of the, uh, the ablation zone of uh, Greenland to, um, to reduce the melt. Now, so what is it that, that all of these are doing? They're all trying, essentially, despite their, their loose, some of their loose grasps on, uh, on the physics, they're all trying to increase the albedo. And um, <clears throat> what they don't speak to is the fact that there are other constituents there that are reducing the albedo. Um, and let me get rid of the... Uh, <laughs> Let me get rid of the psoriasis. I'll go. I'll go back in here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what are they trying to do? They're trying to essentially increase the albedo. Well, there are other ways of going about that, and that's to reduce the particulate deposition uh, to to the mountain snow and ice. And this is uh, this is one of the things that's been been discussed. Um, and the results uh, that I showed from our paper in PNAS with the, with the Upper Colorado, as well as um, earlier modeling results that we've published, that's gotten the attention of the Bureau of Reclamation, uh, Department of Interior more broadly, uh, water conservancy districts in the Upper Colorado, as well as all the way down to um, Los Angeles, Metropolitan Water, LADWP, California Department of Water Resources. Um, because they recognize that uh, as the population increases in the West and potentially the supply of water is going to decrease, their ability to quantify their water resource as well as manage it easily is becoming more and more critical. And so they're wanting to understand what can be done about mitigation of, of dust into, into the mountain snowpack. Um, and that, that effort is, uh, is underway. Um, I can't remember who it was. Somebody mentioned, ah, Mike, you mentioned this uh, this morning um, with respect to black carbon uh, in the polar regions. And I wanted to pull up uh, this, uh, this result. This was from Joe McConnell's group, and it includes Mark Flanner, um, who's authored some papers with, uh, with some of us in the room. Um, and yeah, so, so the peak of black carbon deposition into uh, into Greenland came about 1910, 1920. And then we started to clean things up and we saw a reduction in, uh, in black carbon load um, coming out of North America. And that, of course, though, translated into a radiative forcing uh, that's shown here. And remember that 
or noticed that even though we saw that vast reduction, it didn't reduce back to exactly what it was before. It's still a bit elevated. Um, and we see that in terms of the radiative forcing. And it's perhaps twice what the radiative forcing was prior to that ramp up in industrialization. So is that, is that geoengineering or is that mitigation? I think that's mitigation. We can talk, Let's we'll talk about it. Okay, all right. So, so at any rate, as I mentioned, the Department of Interior, the BLM, uh, Bureau of Reclamation, uh, EPA are all now pushing for dust mitigation in the, in the upper Colorado River. Um, there are efforts also underway with the Navajo Nation. In the eastern half of the upper Colorado River Basin, the Navajo Nation is, is the primary source. Um, at least that's what we see from the big plumes in the remote sensing retrievals. Uh, Jane Belknap, um, who runs the Moab office of the U.S. Geological Survey, um, is very famous in China and Africa, largely because of her ability to help them to understand how to restabilize soils. And she has been inoculating disturbed soils uh, in China, or, or prescribing this, and the Chinese have done this to, to reestablish cryptobiotic soils um, and restabilize deserts. Um, with, with some considerable efficacy. And then Ram, Ramanathan, and others are pushing for the mitigation of black carbon emissions, not just for the atmospheric heating, but also the deposition into, uh, into mountain snow and ice. And then finally, uh, I think there are three of us in this room that are uh, co-authors on this report by uh, the working group that was commissioned by the Pontifical Academy of Sciences. Um, and. Uh, and in this, not only are we pushing for mitigation of, of CO2 emissions, but also um, particulate emissions, dust and uh, black carbon. And this gives me a quick segue into the, the last part, the remote sensing. So current remote sensing technologies can detect changes in glacier and snow extent, but they don't quantify relative forcings or provide important snow and ice properties. Um, such as these others, but uh, airborne and spaceborne imaging spectrometers will soon allow us to make the spatially comprehensive measurements of these surface properties, and in particular that radiative forcing. So <clears throat> I'll wrap it up real quick, Riley. Um, so a couple of, uh, there was a paper that came out uh, just recently, uh, Yun Kian at, at PNNL uh, and Mark Flanners, Mark Flanner um, spoke to uh, the radiative forcing uh, in the Tibetan Plateau um, and uh, that impact on, on the snowpack uh, evolution. Um, but uh, Anil Kulkarni from India was quoted in this article as saying, well, no, the snow cover is not really showing that at all, what these guys were describing in terms of the, the negative trends. And that was based on their paper uh, analyzing the MODIS record of snow-covered area. Now, they were arguing back and forth, but not about the proper measurement. The proper measurement is the radiative forcing. And we don't have that measurement today. We do not have it. MODIS doesn't give us that. And this is why. So remember that the wavelength at which the impact occurs increases with the concentration. So it's a continuous, a continuous change. This is what MODIS gives us. Right? So just these little slivers. 
any kind of topography throws off our ability to infer a snow grain size and to infer a clean snow. Whereas a spectrometer allows us to integrate this ice absorption feature, that gives us the grain size of the snow. We then know what the, the spectral reflectance is of the clean snow, and therefore we can know what the radiative forcing is. The other issue with MODIS is the spatial resolution. So we're zooming in here in the, in the Mount Everest region again. On the left, MODIS data. On the right, these are Hyperion data, which is a, uh, a demonstration imaging spectrometer, but um, of the kind of spatial resolution that we need to start resolving homogeneous patches of snow cover. The MODIS pixels, essentially all of these, are mixed pixels. So we have uh, rock, soil, vegetation mixing in with that snow signal. And it makes it essentially impossible to, uh, to deconvolve from uh, the radiative forcing signal. So how do we go about this? Right now we have the airborne uh, visible infrared imaging spectrometer. And this is a, a uh, NASA facility instrument that's situated at JPL. Um, and from that we can make these kinds of inferences of radiative forcing. Uh, so this is in the upper Colorado. This is a, a color composite, a true color composite from last year. And then these are the instantaneous radiative forcings. And these are at surface forcings near noon, all right? So um, with, the, with the radiances of about 1,100 watts per meter squared. And what do we have for hope out into the future to, to treat this globally other than airborne instruments, which give us access in, say, the western US or in Europe under certain agreements but certainly not flying the border between Nepal and China or flying Pakistan or, or Afghanistan. So the HISPRI um, mission is a, uh, is a decadal survey mission. It's a tier two mission right now, but it will give us global coverage uh, every 19 days uh, across the full spectrum. And that is right now our hope for these measurements. All right, Riley, I'll stop. This program is brought to you by Caltech. Visit us at caltech.edu.